You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading is from John 14, verses 15 through 31. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, Whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we pray now that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us, and what we are not, you would make us. For the sake of your Son, Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated. If you are a fourth through a sixth grader, you can follow Caleb and Emily Ward out of here. You don't have to, but if you'd like to join them for a conversation about the text that Danielle just read, you can do that now. Uh, Also, thanks to Kyle and Michelle for leading wherever you guys went. Uh, Thanks for leading for us this week. And thanks for Mason Banning for being back, former member from Dallas for playing the the sweet keys. Glad you're here, man. Uh, Well, 16 years ago, my parents drove with me to Austin, Texas, and they dropped me off at the University of Texas. UT is an urban campus in the middle of the capital city. So like other big cities where there's no other place to go out and expand in your building, there's settled or nestled right there on 40 acres in the middle of a big city. Uh, The buildings, they have to go up. So my parents dropped me off on the 10th floor of a 14-story dorm. 
Uh, I was one of 3,200 students that were to live in this dorm. Uh, my, my roommate had already moved in, but he wasn't there when my parents dropped me off. Uh, so, like, as soon as they uh, left, they, they, they took me to Walgreens and got a few things, and then they were out of there. And then I was just kind of sitting there, and I kind of rifled through my, my future roommate's closet just snooping around, see what he'd be like. As it turns out, my, my roommate Aaron, he, he's the preaching pastor at First Baptist Roswell <laughs> right now. Uh, but then after I kind of saw what there was to see in his closet, I looked at my mini fridge and was like, all right, now what? And just kind of sat on my bed. Like, how do I start college? Uh, and I didn't really know what to do. I kind of just sat there for like an hour. Eventually, some older guys from my hometown came and said, all right, let's get out of here. They like took me out. They took me to the, the naturally fed cold springs in downtown Austin, and I was off with college. But for like an hour or so, being alone was just weird. It was disorienting, discouraging even. Like, what do I do? I don't know anyone here. And perhaps for many of you, this kind of disorienting and discouraging loneliness has been for a period that's longer than just an hour or so. Perhaps there's been many times in your life where this has been true. Perhaps you went through months or years in high school or college without a sense of belonging. Perhaps you've just recently moved to Albuquerque and you don't really know that many people here. You're feeling alone. Perhaps you've lived in Albuquerque your entire life and you still feel this kind of disorienting or discouraging loneliness, this sense of not belonging, of being alone. Well, last week in the first half of John 14, Jesus told his disciples that he was about to go away. He told them that it was for their benefit that he was going to go away and prepare a place for them to be with God forever. But there's still got to be a lot of questions, a lot of doubt on the disciples' part. Like, okay, yeah, the future that you're describing, that future way out, out there, it sounds great, but what about the, the meantime? Maybe we're starting to understand that it's good that you're going to go away for our future, but what about us in the here and now? It can't be good for us in the present, can it, that you're going to go away? We'll be disoriented. We'll be discouraged without you here. All of which Jesus is now going to turn his, turn his attention to in the second half of chapter 14. So we'll see Jesus reassure his disciples by promising a helper like Jesus who makes a people like Jesus who are trusting in Jesus. So three headings for us tonight. A helper like Jesus who, make a pe- who makes a people like Jesus who are trusting Jesus. So first of all, a helper like Jesus. We'll spend the middle section of our time together thinking through obedience to Jesus, but verse 15 kind of seems out of place, doesn't it? If you've got John chapter 14 in front of you, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he seems to kind of just drop that like it's hot and then move right into, and I'm going to ask my father for another helper. I mean, what's the deal? He seems to just talk about obedience and then move right into talking about this helper. Well, like last week, we saw that Jesus telling his disciples to not let their hearts be troubled, that came right after Peter's denial in chapter 13. Well, this week, this text that we're picking up right here comes right on the heels of Jesus telling them to pray in faith in Jesus' name. And what John originally wrote down on a scroll, and in Greek, didn't have these big chapter and verse numbers. 
And they certainly didn't have these italic section headings like maybe you have in your Bible. Like it says right in the middle of chapter 14, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit or something. John didn't write that. These are helpful additions that some later English editor just kind of gave us to help break up the, the flow of thought. Well, all of this though that John wrote for us and all that Jesus is speaking aloud is flowing together in Jesus' big final farewell speech. His last words to his beloved disciples. So last week we saw that praying in Jesus' name isn't just some magic word end of the prayer statement to like make sure that it gets to God and then, then he has to obey your prayer request or something. And so now Jesus is hammering that point home. Praying in Jesus' name, nor the greater works that we saw Jesus uh, promise to his disciples last week, none of that will come to those who think that they can just manipulate the crucified and exalted Christ like some rabbit's foot that makes God obey your prayer request. No, the kinds of prayers that God will hear and receive, the kinds of prayers that are actually prayed in Jesus' name and in union with him and in faith in Jesus, wanting what he wants, not just like some alakazam throwaway for what I want, are for those who are actually united to Jesus, for those who are actually loving him. And how do we know if someone actually loves Jesus? Well, they obey him. This is not a conditional demand, like Jesus is saying, all right, everybody, I want you to prove that you love me by obeying me. No, he's just giving a statement of reality. If you love me, you will obey me. We've seen the love of God the Father, the love of Christ reiterated over and over and over again in this gospel account, but this is the very first time in John that Jesus speaks of the disciples' love for him. So more on that in a bit as we think about obedience more through this middle section. But the first entailed reality for Jesus' disciples is that they will love and obey him. But how will this happen? How, after all, will they obey him if the disciples are of this world? They're, they're, they're of the place of darkness. They're of the place of opposition. We've seen that within their own hearts, they don't even understand what Jesus is talking about, even in this chapter. So how are they to obey him? Well, the second entailed reality, and our heading for this first section, is that Jesus will send a helper, a helper like Jesus. Verse 16, he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, it's possible to read this word another in English and for it to mean something that's separate, something distinct. Like if you were to go to a pizza place and order a pizza and make like a horrible, horrible mistake and get like kale on it or something. You would take one bite, realize your tragic mistake, and like wave the server over and say, I need another pizza. Something utterly different than this one. It's horrible. But Jesus here is using a word, another, to mean like the same kind. So if you had a delicious pizza pizza, just a slice the server gave you, you would wave the server over and said, I need another one of the, another one. Like one just like this. And the server would know to go get one exactly like the one they first brought you. So Jesus is not saying that God the Father will give you another one, a different something, that is the helper, but he's saying another helper of the same kind, 
but the same kind of what? Well, the same kind as himself. Jesus has certainly been helping the disciples understand the nature of God. Remember, Jesus is God's gracious self-disclosure of himself. The way that we understand God is to see Jesus. So Jesus has been helping them in that sense. Jesus is even helping them now. He's comforting their hearts and reminding them to not let their hearts be troubled. In fact, many translations, English translations, use the word comforter here. Perhaps you've got that in your Bible, another comforter. But today, a comforter is like a big blanket or someone who just sits next to you and cries with you at a funeral. We really don't use comforter the way that some English speakers have used it in the past, like a strengthener, someone who comes alongside and aids you. And the word that Jesus actually uses is the Greek word parakletos, another paraclete. We don't have that word, but someone who comes alongside, which in secular Greek would have meant a legal assistant or an advocate. And in fact, this might be what John has in mind because he even calls Jesus our paraclete. In 1 John 2, Jesus says, or John says, we have an advocate. We have a paraclete with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So John calls the Holy Spirit the helper, the advocate, the paraclete here. But then later in his other letter, he'll say that Jesus is the same thing. So if that's what Jesus has been doing in his earthly ministry, comforting a strengthening advocate here on earth for his disciples, and he will continue to do this forever in heaven, Jesus is going to send another one very much like him for his disciples who are here left on earth. And not just for a time, but verse 16, forever. And this is the spirit of truth, which means it is the spirit of Jesus, because Jesus called himself the truth 11 verses prior to this. The spirit of Jesus, the spirit of truth, the spirit of true revelation of who God is will dwell with you and will be in you. This isn't the first time that Jesus has talked about the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. He talked about the Spirit's unpredictable but saving power, like the wind uh, that brings a second birth in John chapter 3 when Jesus was talking at nighttime to Nicodemus. But what Jesus just told his disciples here in chapter 14 ought to have gotten them to perk up and perhaps send a few shivers down their spine. What Jesus just told them is that rea the realities of the promised new covenant a covenant that Israel had been waiting for for centuries were about to be realized. The time in which the Spirit wouldn't just come on and in and through people for, for a time, but forever. Forever changing them. Like in Ezekiel 36 where God promised, I will put my Spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is new birth stuff that Ezekiel was looking forward to. From death to life. From stone to alive, permanent change, not just for a time. And not just on the prophets or the kings, like the Holy Spirit would tend to in the Old Covenant, but that everyone who is in this new covenant might receive the Holy Spirit equally, like in Joel 2, when God promised, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, even on the male and female servants. Like the lowly slaves would also receive the Holy Spirit. Not just prophets or kings. Peter and John and the boys must have just heard this and like, whew, like, did he just say like, is this the time? 
Is it about to happen what we've been waiting for? Jesus, the, the second person of the triune God, is leaving. But the triune God is not leaving these disciples. He says, I will not leave you as orphans, or literally, I will not leave you fatherless. How do we know? I, I will come to you. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, will be with us, a comforter, a strengthener, an advocate. Thankfully, we've got the next few weeks to keep thinking about the role of the Spirit in our own lives as individuals and together as, as, as a church, what the role of the Spirit is with, with us together. But I just want to camp out here for a few minutes, thinking about the Holy Spirit. One pastor writes about the Spirit in a way that I can relate to and have for perhaps the most of my life. He says, many, many Christians believe in the Holy Spirit, but they relate to him in the same way they relate to their pituitary gland. Grateful it's in there. Know it's essential for something, but don't pay much attention to it. I think many of us have swung hard against a stream of Christianity that many of us can conclude is just kind of too much into the Spirit. That is, we've seen an emphasis on the Spirit of perhaps being the Spirit of emotion instead of what Jesus calls him the Spirit of truth. That you can become a Christian, but then expect some future second blessing, some real encounter with the Holy Spirit. Or of so-called Spirit-filled churches, as if there were any other kind. A pro tip, uh, a church that is not Spirit-filled is not a church. Uh, what makes a church a church is Christians who have been filled with the Spirit. Uh, so if you hear of a church that is spirit-filled, but then like kind of assuming that other churches maybe aren't spirit-filled, well, you shouldn't be a part of that church at all because there aren't any Christians there. Anyway, these kinds of so-called spirit-filled churches are perhaps kinds of churches that I, I know that several of you have grown up in, uh, have been part of, been around, that the arrival of the spirit can be intimately perhaps tied to the presence of a smoke machine or like a really awesome electric guitar riff or a drum kit. But here's the deal. The Holy Spirit is like the wind. He goes wherever he wishes. He doesn't come at the invitation of people singing about him or at the command of a guitar. He is God. He is not to be manipulated. And nor does he come and go in the first place. Like we need to invite him to come in here as if the Holy Spirit wasn't with us forever in the first place, as Jesus promised he would be. Jesus and the Spirit are not, as some have said through the centuries, two separate hands of God at work. Don't we kind of tend toward thinking that? But like, there's God the Father. God worked with Jesus for a while. Now he's really working with the Holy Spirit in this time. No, the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from God the Father. And then as Jesus is saying, Jesus will send the Spirit. Proceeds from the Father and the Son. So that we might tr know and relish the true nature of the triune God. This is not understanding uh, worshiping in, relishing in the Holy Spirit is not some Christless mysticism that de-emphasizes the glory of God the Father through the work of God the Son now begun, grown, and sustained through God the Spirit. But perhaps too often, if we've been part of this kind of Christless mysticism, there's perhaps an overemphasis on gifts, on signs, and the emotions so I think that many of us have rightly reacted to that. But lest we sit here in 
high-minded criticism and cynicism, we have swung the pendulum too far, I'm afraid. Many, most of us, perhaps even now, don't think of the triune God as God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but perhaps more rightly, we think God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Bible, right? The Father, the Son, and the Scriptures. That's all we need. We actually don't believe Jesus when we'll see him say in John 16 that having the Holy Spirit dwelling in us would be better than having Jesus' bodily presence beside us. I think we can hear that and actually not really believe that, right? Like many of us would rather just have Jesus still here with us, just to sit around and talk theology all day. Jesus could tell me what to do. Surely I wouldn't sin so much if I had his disappointing gaze on me my whole life. You guys, like there is a whole lot more to say here. I'm so glad we've got three more, four more chapters here. Jesus is just going to keep riffing on this for a long time. I'm so glad for myself to have several more weeks to think about the Spirit. But if you are a Christian, through your present faith in Christ living and dying for you, that through his substitutionary cross, your belief that your life makes no sense now through his cross and his empty tomb, the Spirit of God, the third person of the triune God, has brought you from death to life. And now that same Spirit who was behind the very creation of the world, the same Spirit who brought by his power Jesus from the dead, is now living inside of you and at work within you. The Spirit is not just like he was in the Old Testament, like in some building, some temple in Jerusalem. But he has now made his dwelling place in all of these little mobile temples all over the world, and he has filled you. This is not your stupid pituitary gland. I'm sorry, there's a lot of doctors here, and I know the pituitary gland is very, very important. This is God Almighty living inside of you. How we can under-realize, under-emphasize, under-appreciate, under-talk about the Spirit at work within us, that's just beyond me. But we do because I do. I've often heard, though, the comforter description of the Spirit here in John 14 of like a dad teaching his son or daughter to ride a bike behind, running with, stabilizing, correcting, and then after a disastrous crash, picking up, wiping off the bloody knees, shaking off the dust, putting back on the bike, and sending off again. We need more awareness of the power of the Spirit in our lives, not less. We need more dependence on the power of the Spirit in our lives, not less. So in moments of temptation, of Moments of weakness, of doubt, of pain, sadness in our lives. A totally appropriate prayer would be, Spirit, help me. Holy Spirit, help me. Strengthen me now. Fix my eyes on Jesus and his promises. This is a good prayer, and it ought to be an often and regular prayer throughout every hour and day of our lives. Jesus will not leave us fatherless, but will send us the comforting, the stabilizing, 
the strengthening Spirit of God. To, as Paul says, when he calls the Spirit the Spirit of Christ, to give us a spirit of adoption. The triune God of the universe is not annoyed or put off or disappointed in our weakness, but the triune God of the universe is for us to stabilize, that we might actually be able to ride with him. I want you to listen to verses 18 through 20 again. Like, perhaps close your eyes and hear Jesus saying this to you. And just let the doors of your brain and your soul be blown open here. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you fatherless. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You will also live. And in that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me. And I in you. We're going to keep thinking about throughout John 17 about what it means for an individual Christian to be wrapped up into the life of the triune God. But do you believe this? Do you believe that if you are in Christ and he in you, that the, the, the triune God of the universe is not annoyed that you got off on some legal technicality of trusting Jesus and now he's kind of bummed out that he has to forgive you, but that he is actually more resolutely committed to you than you are. That he is more resolutely committed to your joy than you are. But we can know that because of our second point here. God first sends a comforter like Jesus, but secondly, The comforter makes a people like Jesus. Okay, so naturally, after all the talk of the Spirit, Jesus goes right back into obedience. Because if the same Spirit that has come to dwell in us is the Spirit that anointed and dwelled in Jesus, he can say in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, it's our tendency to read that as conditional. Oh, shoot, we think. Jesus just said that for God to love me, I have to love him and keep his commandments. It's not going very well. This week was actually not that great in keeping his commandments, so maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe we should all try harder this week to assure God's love for us. But we know that can't be what he's saying because we've seen over and over and over again in John's gospel that it is impossible for the people of the world to first love God without him first loving them, without him, the shepherd, calling and drawing them to himself. Even John will tell us in 1 John 4, John writes very specifically, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son. So if that's true, that God first loves us before we can ever love him, what in the world is Jesus talking about here then? He says, and he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. As we said earlier, he's just explaining reality. That a person who has been made alive, a person who has been adopted into the family of God, will first receive the spirit of God, Remember, there is no non-spirit-filled Christian. Someone who believes in God is filled with his spirit. But two, then they will just obey his commands. 
I don't know if you saw an extremely helpful article this week that was posted on the Gospel Coalition. Thinking about the relationship between justification and sanctification, we'll include that in the weekly email this week. It was wonderful. But thinking about justification, justification, that, that doctrine of being made right before God, the reality that humanity is apart from Christ, fundamentally at odds with God, that we have lived our lives in such rebellion against him that we are due his right judgment on such high treason against the high king of creation. But in grasping and holding on to so tightly by faith the work of Christ, that he would live and die for us, he moves us categorically. This is justification. That Jesus, through faith in him, moves us from death to life, from darkness to light, from orphan to adoption. This is justification of moving, of being made right before God. Whereas sanctification, on the other hand, is what happens to justified sinners, of them becoming more holy, of growing in obedience. And this article, though, is wrestling through the question of which one of these doctrines is more important. Is justification or is sanctification more central to us in our lives? And the writer says this, justification is more foundational, but sanctification is more ultimate. Justification is the ground of the gospel, but sanctifying fellowship is the goal of the gospel. Therefore, asking which is more important misses the point. More important for what? Without, without justification, sanctification is fruitless, right? Without God making us right before him through the work of Christ on our behalf, us becoming more holy is just us trying to please God and work our way into his acceptance, which can never happen. We can never be good enough to work our way into his acceptance. But without sanctification, justification is pointless. Look, God is not interested in getting people off on legal technicalities to just let them be and think about them after they die and get to heaven. He is about making people holy. This is how he initially created humanity as holy, holy and sinless. And this eventually is how he will restore all sinners. There will only be holiness in the restored kingdom of God. And perhaps you think, oh, I, I don't like the sound of that. That sounds really boring. Holiness is kind of boring. I like to live my life on the edge, man. Well, your future full holiness should be the most joy-filling hope of your life of the time in which you'll no longer pursue happiness and contentment in things that will always let you down, of your constant and full fellowship with God, though, through constant obedience and delight in him, nothing but joy, the kind of abundant, full life that God has created you for. But this isn't just a future reality. Of course, for the rest of our lives, there will be still the presence of sin and our constant temptation to worship things other than him, to worship ourselves. But by the power of the guiding, stabilizing, correcting Holy Spirit in our lives, he makes his people more and more holy in this life as well. Not that Christians are sinless, but over 
the course of the months and years of our lives, if we say that we love Jesus, he will cause us to sin less. So for those who don't accept what Jesus has taught thus far about himself in John, and by the way, he's saying you need to keep my commandments, but he hasn't really given a ton of commandments, a ton of imperatives in this gospel account. But if we include not just these 14 chapters and what's to come in this gospel account, but the whole of the word of Christ, the entirety of the Bible, the word and law of Christ, those who are just picking and choosing the parts that they like and disregarding the rest aren't loving him as they say they are. They've actually just made a Jesus in their own image, which is actually a lot easier to obey, isn't it? If we just pick and choose a Jesus that we like, that Jesus is pretty easy to obey. But Jesus' people actually begin to slowly but surely act like him, love like him, respond more and more like Jesus because of the life and power of the same spirit that was at work in him that is now in work, at work in us. So when Judas, Judas in verse 22, not the betrayer, but another Judas, Bible trivia there, there's two Judases that are disciples. This Judas, he asked Jesus in verse 22, he said, he's like, wait, Lord, you said that you'd manifest, you'd show or display yourself. But how will you do this without the world clearly seeing you? How will you show your power if it isn't the way we think you'll do it? Judas is still thinking that the Messiah is going to show and display himself as a conquering warrior king over the oppressive governments of the world. But Jesus says, dude, I am not going to display myself over oppressive governments, but I'm going to display myself as the conquering king over oppression itself of an enemy far older and deeper than Rome or Egypt, the rebellion of sin. I'm going to kill it by making a holy people. I'm going to show myself through my people. So he answers Judas in verse 23. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Judas is wondering how in the world Jesus is going to display himself to the world. And Jesus says that the triune God will dwell within his people and make them holy to display the glory of the triune God to the world. You know, by things such as love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These are the ways in which the world will see the glory of God. So here's a question for us. Are you growing in holiness? Are you growing in obedience to Jesus's commands? Are you actively rooting out sin in your life, seeking to kill it for God's glory, for your own joy, for the world to see God's goodness? Are you confessing sin to others in your gospel communities? Are you asking for help and in active, in-the-moment accountability, not just using each other as like some after-the-fact confessional booth to just kind of appease our consciences? Is the growth of your spiritual life like a man with a yo-yo? Yes, ups and downs, 
but a man with a yo-yo walking up a flight of stairs. That your highest highs and your lowest lows are still yet higher than they were five years ago. Jesus is not throwing down the gauntlet of conditions here. He's just explaining reality. Whereas Martin Lloyd-Jones preached about 70 years ago, I am not to live a good and holy life in order that I may become a Christian. I am to live the holy life because I am a Christian. I am not to live this holy life in order that I may enter heaven. It is because I know that I'm going to enter heaven that I must live this holy life. Now, I I hope all of this is reassuring to you. I hope you're not suddenly like flooded with doubt about obedience in your life. The good news is there's a lot more to say on this. Jesus knows it, so he's just going to keep going through chapter 15. So we'll have hopefully some time this week to talk about this text with your GCs, but then come back next Sunday. Jesus is going to spend all of chapter 15 talking about the same things that we've already been talking about. Life in the Spirit creating life change in the Spirit. So we saw the first promise of a helper like Jesus who then makes a people like Jesus, but then lastly, who these people are trusting Jesus. He makes a people like him who then trusts him. Verse 25, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. First, Jesus is encouraging the disciples that one major role in the coming helper, the coming Holy Spirit, is to help them understand the teaching of Jesus. The disciples on on this side of the cross, on this side of receiving the Holy Spirit, they don't yet get it, right? As evidenced by all these questions, like look at all the times uh, a disciple opens his mouth in chapter 14. Thomas asks a question, Philip asks a question, Judas asks a question. They don't understand what he's talking about. And it's not just that they're stupid. They just don't have a category for a suffering servant who has come to bring them out of spiritual oppression and fill them with the very life of God. But one day they will. And when the very life of God, the Holy Spirit, indwells them, he will bring remembrance and a full realization of all that Jesus had taught them. And the Spirit does this in our lives as his disciples as well. Correcting misunderstandings of Jesus. Reminding us of the teachings of Jesus. Reminding us of his word, of his goodness. To fill out who Jesus is that we might follow him. And that's another good thing, by the way, to pray of from the Holy Spirit in your life. Holy Spirit, help me remember. Help me understand. Help me actually believe the promises of God through his word, through Christ. But the reality is, is that Jesus is going away. But by doing so, he's leaving his disciples with peace by giving them peace, not the kind of peace that the world can offer. And boy, howdy, doesn't the world offer us all kinds of peace? Like if you can just get the right job at the right dollar amount, then you can stay out of debt, 
you can have enough free time and leisure time in your life to exercise and have the right kind of body that you might then be able to enjoy in the right kind of home with the right kind of square footage and then we'll have peace. Or if we can just slow our minds enough and exercise and eat the right kinds of food or if we can elect the right kinds of politicians who can then pass the right laws, if the economy could change in this kind of right way, or if we could just educate our children and society in this kind of right way, then finally we'll have peace. Peace for you after this and this and this and this happens. Peace for you. Peace for the world. But it will never be. I hope that after how many thousands of years we as humans have to observe our own history and just observing the last week of news in the world. Peace is not coming, people. It's not coming from governments. It's not coming from the right policies or laws. And I'm not saying that we should check out as Christians, as as like hopeless cynics. Christians should be on the front lines of civic engagement. But the kind of peace that Jesus is offering is a peace that the world cannot offer. The peace of God, which as Paul says in Philippians 4, it's, it's almost impossible to understand. Because it's just not of this world. It, it can't be given and suggested by human solutions, human means. The peace of God, which comes from God, can only come because Jesus goes to war. Peace comes through war. That because Jesus is rejected by God on the cross, we can be accepted. That because Jesus is abandoned, we might forever be able to be adopted as his sons and daughters. That we might have the Spirit forever because Jesus experiences dryness from the Spirit. That we can experience the peace of God because Jesus experiences the wrath of God on the cross for those who would hold tightly to him. His peace is ours only when Jesus leaves, when he goes through the cross. But ours and Thomas's and Philip's and Judas's tendency is to just rather want Jesus to just stick around right here, physically by our side forever. We'll get to think more about why that's actually better that he leaves in chapter 16, but here Jesus confronts theirs and he confronts our selfishness in verse 28. He says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, Jesus is not saying that he's somehow a lower creation than than the Father, like Jehovah's Witnesses or Muslims like to say about this verse. That's just ridiculous. Like, just read the rest of John. So, he can't be saying that. But after 33 long years, Jesus finally, he finally gets to return to the kingdom to which he belongs, the place of undiminished glory of God the Father, who is no doubt greater than Jesus is right now in his humanity, walking around in weakness. Of course God the Father is greater than him in his kingdom right now, because Jesus is walking in, around in a body that can like get the flu. Unlike Jesus, who didn't think of his divinity as something to be selfishly hoarded, though his disciples want to hoard him for themselves, for their joy, not what brings joy to their master and what is good for the world. And how often are we the same, trying to use Jesus 
for what might selfishly bring us joy by ignoring what brings him joy, what is good for the world. But the doorway to where he is going is his death. It's coming. So verse 30, he says he can't talk much longer. Time's running out. This is his farewell deathbed speech. It's not going to last forever. And when he leaves, it's going to be confusing. He's saying, my, my death might not make sense. But even then, and even after you see me in my resurrection, it's going to look like the ruler of this world. It's going to look like the evil one is in charge. But he is not. He's on a leash and he is not in charge of me. Jesus says, and the world must learn this. The world may think with Satan that Jesus is defeated in his death, that he is weak and that he is unable to save, but it is through his death that Satan is actually defeated and Jesus' power over sin and death is actually vindicated. Are you trusting in Jesus in this way? Even when you can't see him, Right? I think so many of us would rather have Jesus right by our side because then we can at least see him. We know he's there. Are you trusting him in this way even when all hell seems to be breaking loose in this world and perhaps in your life? But it's not true. All hell is not breaking loose. Certainly in your life if you're trusting in him. We often sing, that soul though all hell should endeavor to shake. Speaking as if Jesus was saying this, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Though all hell should endeavor to shake you in your faith. Jesus is saying, I'll never, no never, no never forsake you. So if I have a nice house with a nice paycheck and the politicians that I voted for get elected, that's great. But if they're not and I lose my house and my job, that's just fine also. Because I have Jesus. All I have is Christ. And I have received his peace by his spirit. He has not left us alone to fend for ourselves in a disorienting and discouraging loneliness. He has not left us fatherless. He has left us with the comforter. And the evil of this world is on a leash. But the only peace from this evil is through the peace of his cross. So friend... Are you considering Jesus tonight? Are you considering who he might be for you in your life tonight? Well, I would just encourage you to consider him no longer. Stop considering him. There is no peace aside from him. The peace offered by the world is not peace. Have your sins be forgiven tonight. And trust him as your king, as your Lord, as your God. And brothers and sisters, keep clinging. Keep clean. Life is not going to get easier. It'd be a lot easier for me to just stand up here and say, trust Jesus and all your problems will go away. But it's not true. There will still be weakness. There will still be sin and pain and hardship and even loneliness in your life. But he has not left you fatherless. Brothers and sisters, beloved, let not your hearts be troubled. He is with you and will be until the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Father, we are floored by the reality that you have called us to call you Father, that you have commanded us to call you Father, that you are our Father, that you have adopted us into your family 
through your son, Jesus, that all of the rights and claims of sonship that Jesus has are now ours through him. So we come to you in confidence, not in weakness and doubt because we didn't love you as we should have this week, but that Jesus has certainly loved you as he ought to have. And since we are united with him in faith, we come confidently not based on our works, but his. Not in our obedience, but his. Not in our delight and joy in you, but his. But because of all of that, Father, we pray that you might make us into a people who does delight more in you, who does have greater joy in you, who does obey you, who loves to obey you, who is uh, quick to recognize the ways in our lives when, when, we are not to, when we are not obeying you, but that by your comforting, correcting, stabilizing spirit, you are making us more and more into a people who displays your glory to the nations around us. Father, make us holy, we pray, for your glory and for our good, for our own joy and for the sake of Christ. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.